Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3, we're going to be here in just a few verses this morning, verses 14 through 17, as we walk through uh, this passage. We've been going for several weeks now and just sort of understanding who we are as a church. And we've seen that the core of our identity is that we are a local church committed to Christ-centered worship and life-on-life discipleship so that we can raise up believers, leaders, and churches. And we've kind of worked our way from the inside out in terms of this uh, next graphic. We started with worship. We are here to worship God, to call people to worship God through his son, Jesus Christ. Then last week we looked at the idea that as God does this in our hearts, our life ought to touch someone else's life and lead that person closer to Jesus. That's life on life discipleship. Now we're going to sort of work our way around the outside here, and we're kind of at, I don't know, one or noon to three here on, the, on, this, on this dial, or two o'clock, the sufficiency of Scripture, or the idea that God has given us in His Word, and in giving us His Word, He has given us all that we need to live lives here as He has designed us to live them, that His Word is what we need. And we're going to summarize it really this way, God's Word is enough. God's Word is is enough. And so if you'll read with me in your Bible, 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, equipped for every good work. Well, I was thinking this week, and how many of you uh, can remember or recognize this guy right here? One of the most, you only see him, you know, every four years, but certainly one of the most famous faces in American sports history because he's won more Olympic medals than anyone else. 28 medals, 23 of them gold medals. And so he kind of sprung lightly onto the scene back in Athens. That was in 2004. And then almost for a generation, he dominated the sport of international swimming like no one else, even retiring and then coming back and doing it again. But it was really at the 2008 Beijing Olympics where he made his name. Eight gold medals in eight attempts. Kind of mind-blowing. And if you've tracked his career at all, you know he has a competitive drive like no one else. But also in those times, he had an appetite like no one else. And it was in the middle of the 2008 Olympics that his appetite, his diet, became kind of international news as well. During these eight races where he won eight medals, gold medals, in eight tries, he consumed 12 thousand calories per day. Now, I don't know the last time you looked at an RDA, a recommended daily allowance for calories, but that ain't your recommended daily allowance. I don't care who you are. That's five times the amount of calories the typical adult male is supposed to consume in a day. 4,000 calories per meal. His breakfast looked like this. Three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise, two cups of coffee, one five-egg omelet, one bowl of porridge, three slices of sugar-coated French toast, and three chocolate chip pancakes. Breakfast. Lunch. Over a pound of pasta. Two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayonnaise on white bread, 
energy drinks worth another thousand calories. For dinner that same day, he ate another pound plus of pasta, an entire pizza, and more energy drinks. Why did Michael Phelps eat so much? Because he needed those calories, that energy, to succeed. In other words, it wasn't an accident when he hit the pool. Yes, it's, it's, it's the result of many years, many hours of training, but it's also the result of a carefully constructed diet, and he could eat a lot more of a lot of things that you and I would like to eat because he was just burning off those calories every day. Imagine with me for a minute that we're all in a race, and we're in it to win it. Imagine if you woke up every morning and you knew today is the day. You get a few tries, and today is a try to win the gold medal. You would do everything that you could to train, to plan, to prepare, to win that gold medal. And yet Hebrews 12 tells us that we are all in a race. And we're told to run this race with patience, looking to Jesus. But as we do this, we know that running doesn't happen divorced from everything else in life. You can't separate it from everything else that goes on around it. You have to prepare, you have to train, and you have to eat. So the question is, for us, what is our diet? Where does our energy come from? Where do these 12,000 calories come from? I imagine this morning, if you walked through and looked through churches throughout our land, you would walk into a place not of finely tuned, finely honed athletes, but of emaciated people. People who have no energy. People who kind of stumble along from one experience in life to the next and wonder how they're going to make it. People who look more like prisoner of war survivors almost than people in the prime of life. What we're going to see this morning is that God's Word is enough for everything that we need, but we will die if we do not consume His Word. We run through life, God, why is it such a struggle? God, why am I, why am I weak? Why do I always run after sin and not after you? God, why am I so discouraged? God, why does this feel so hard? And God has given us all that we need. But we're, I mean, we're eating all the time. We're consuming all the time. And yet the truth is that we're often consuming things that will rob our joy, suck the life out of our soul, and certainly not give us the energy and power we need to live the life that God has called us to. Churches are full of spiritually starving people because they aren't feeding on the Word of God. God's word is enough, but we cannot be growing followers of Jesus if we don't regularly consume his word. So how is it that we get God's word? Well, as we walk through these verses, we'll see two sources for how we get the word of God. The first is an ultimate source. In other words, an author, someone who wrote this. And the second is how we actually get it, how we put it on the table. And so first, let's consider how this word came to us. How was it written? Verse 16, why does the Bible have the power to change lives? I read a lot, read a lot of books, and there are some books that are formative and very shaping in my thinking, but there's no book that has the power to give life like this book. So what is it that makes this book different from 
other books. It's really not the type of paper used or the type of numbers crunched to put it in your app. It's the person who wrote it. God has written these words. The Bible is different from from other books because God is the author. There's not a word in these pages that is the creation of a mere human being. The Bible tells many stories. Joseph, Joshua, David, Abraham, Moses, Noah, and yet it's one story with one author telling us, pointing us toward the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16 tells us all Scripture is God-breathed. God exhaled these words, and he did it in a remarkable way as he used human authors to write the words. Forty human authors over a period of 1,500 years to write this book. These are eternal, life-giving words, and God tells us that everything we see here will be gone one day, but this word will stand forever. You can build your life on it, and it will not fail Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. God's word is uniquely life-giving, uniquely authoritative because God wrote it. So this is how God kind of gave his word. Well, then how does the word get into our lives? How does the word come to us? I'd like you to imagine with me... uh, my house. So just picture yourself in my house and say Liz is gone and, and, and she's, she's out for the evening and my kids come in and they're like, Dad, what's for dinner? Now, the first thing I would say is probably like milk and cereal, but after that, I would say, well, let's figure this out. I'd say, it, it's there, you eat it. And they're like, well, what are we having? I said, well, we're having chicken and dumplings. And they're like, Dad, there, there, there is no chicken and there are no dump- there, there's nothing here. And I said, no, it's all there. Go look. And they open the cabinet. I said, there's flour in there. I open, the, open the refrigerator. There's chicken inside. Well, is that ready to eat? No, there, there's no meal there. There's an idea of a meal. I mean, it's, it's sitting out there on the shelf, you know, with the idea that it could be eaten. But, but you can't consume that. What that requires is someone with the knowledge and the skill to do that, to, to prepare something. To, t- to take those ingredients, to put them into some sort of semblance of, of prepared package and then, and then cook them or bake them or whatever you do and, and, and then, then serve it. So what you're trying to do is someone to take the idea of this food in the shelf and like someone put some food on the table. It's like that food in the cabinet over there doesn't really help me when it's time to eat. You know, we're hunting, we're opening the cabinet and flour doesn't look good but a plate of cookies on the table, warm and hot and melting in your mouth, that sounds really good. And so what we're asking is, how do we we take the word from kind of where it is and put it into our lives? How do we put it in a way that's digestible? How do we consume it? How does it come to us? Well, in verses 14 and 15, we see things that Paul says elsewhere, but but he implies here. He says, continue, verse 14, in what you have learned. So there's this, there's this process. There's this, there's this instruction process in this guy in, in Timothy's life. And he says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So, so Paul's saying there's the, there are these writings. There's this book. In their case, maybe a scroll or a codex or something. But he's saying you learned this from someone. In other words, someone took it off the shelf and put it in your life or put it on the table in a way that, that you could actually digest it, in a way that you could consume it. He says, someone did this for you. 
Now, I've met a few people who kind of on their own went out, got a Bible, got opened their eyes, and they became a Christian. I've met a few people like that. But for most people, it doesn't quite happen like that. Well, take a moment and flip a page back in your Bible, maybe a page or two, right to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Paul writes here, he knows Timothy, he knows him very well. He's like a child to him, like a son in the faith. And he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Where does this faith come from? A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you too. So what happened is there's this faith, there's, there's the word of God, Timothy's grandmother and Timothy's mother know the word, and what they do is what? They teach it to Timothy. God's word comes to us through the lives of other people. As one life touches another life, God, the ultimate source, the writer, the author of Scripture, uses secondary sources, teachers, people, moms, dads, grandmas, granddads, to put the word of God into people's lives. There are people sitting here, and you've spent your entire life praying, trying to pass the word on to the next generation. But there are other people, and you're in the thick of this right now, and, you know, like, trying to do this doesn't look like some amazing existential individual experience where, you know, you pass this on, and there's, like, I don't know, like, a nice soundtrack playing in the background, a child weeping, and, oh, mom, I can't believe you taught me this. This is amazing. It doesn't look like that. It looks like kicking each other under the table. It looks like snotty nose and wiping it where it ought not to be wiped. It looks like, could you just sit still? It looks like mom losing her cool or dad losing his cool. It looks like a grandparent feeling badly out of touch with, with, with her grandchildren and, and trying to get them to just listen. And, and then they're like, You're not, you know, if, if, if my iPad doesn't do it, I don't care. And there's this, this distance, this, this removal. But, but brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. The most important ministry you could ever have in your life may be this. It may be that you figure out how to beat cancer. You may be the one that does that. Or it may be that God calls you to take the word of God, put it into some young person's life in a way that that person can digest it and come to faith in Christ. And that's what happened with, for Timothy. And then an entire church at Ephesus is affected by this man's life because his grandmother and his mother took the word of God and served it to him in a way that he could understand it. It's not rocket science. It's not saving the world, but it might just be the way God saves someone's soul. We take the, light, the, the word of God and we, we put it into someone's life. And really, whether you're a parent, grandparent, or not, the process is the same. It's Single people touching other single people. It's people who have no family becoming spiritual family to someone else. It's people taking the word of God and touching someone else's life with that word. God's word is the way we lead people to Jesus. So you've seen how we get the word. We get it first, God speaks. And then we get it through people as as we, as people, take the word and try to put it into one another's lives. Well, what then is it that the word does? In other words, why is it so important? What does God's word do for us? Well, God's word has two primary effects, and one of these will kind of break down a little bit further. But the first thing is, and the most important thing, is that it leads us to Christ. Verse 15, it is able 
to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's writing and he says that the gospel is the foolishness of God to the natural mind. So what is it that takes the gospel and turns it into wisdom? It's God's word. It's the word of God. The word, when empowered by the spirit of God, takes the words of God and opens our minds to the gospel of God. You see, the word is the, is, is the lens. It's, it's sort of like we're looking at life and, it, and it's blurry. Or we got like dirty smudged glasses and God takes the word and he sort of cleans off the lenses of our eyes and allows us to see the world as he designed it, to see the world as he created it. You see, the word is the voice. And as John 10 tells us, it's the voice of the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. When the shepherd calls, they hear me and they come and they follow me. The word is that kind of voice because it reveals the word, Jesus Christ. God has spoken through his word and through his son. And this word reveals the word, Jesus Christ, to us. Now, you may be someone here and you can't, I mean, <laughs> you can't make any sense of what's written in here. Now, first of all, you may be, need to get a, a version of this that you can understand, okay? That may be the problem. But it may be that you have not had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And God says these words, they are words, but they're not merely words. There's this process of illumination of God opening our eyes, and we cannot have that apart from an encounter, a saving encounter with Jesus Christ, because we get God's Spirit, and in getting God's Spirit, we understand the Word, and apart from the Spirit, we can't truly understand what God has said. The first step to hearing God's voice as God has spoken is placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's hearing the call of the shepherd and responding to his voice. And he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. If you're here this morning and you don't know God by faith in Jesus Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust him? It's the only way you can truly hear his voice through his word. God leads us to Christ through the word, and he also, he says, equips us for every good work. Everything that God calls us to do, he equips us to do through his word. Verse 16 says that scripture is profitable. Now, I know a lot of teachers, or a lot of preachers who would disagree with this. God's word hasn't been a profitable way of life for them. There are people serving the kingdom of God throughout the world that the, that the, the word of God has not been a profitable ministry for them. Now, there are a few kind of charlatan preachers out there who do make profit by it and kind of twisting this, but this doesn't mean that you can turn a profit. Now, some of y'all are good at that, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something else. It just means that it does us good. It's beneficial. It's like, it's like nutritious food, what we're talking about. It's eating something that equips us, that empowers us to do what God has called us to do. Now, if you spend any time um, either playing athletics or watching or something, sometimes like someone will hit a wall, and when they hit that wall, they go back in the locker room for like 10 minutes, and they come back out, and what do they get in the locker room? They get fluids, and they get an IV, and it's like, they just, it's like they're literally sucking nutrients into their veins so they can come back out and, and succeed in, in what they're there to do, and, and God's word is, is, is like nutrition that we need. It's, it's the lifeblood. It carries the power of God throughout our lives. We see the result of this in verse 17. The man of God may be complete, perfect, entire, equipped for every good 
work. So when Scripture digs down deep into our hearts, it's the way that God equips us to do what he calls us to do. You ever have this experience in life where either you sense that you ought to do something or you know to be obedient to God's word, you must do something and you don't feel equipped to do it. Believe it or not, in fact, it's, it's like this happens to me fairly frequently. Where, 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 where there's a moment, it's like I'm encountering a situation I literally do not know what to do. And I know everyone in that room thinks I ought to know what to do. And I have no clue. Where do you go in a moment like that? Paul's answer is you go to his word. You go to the word of God. Because what God is demonstrating to you is true. You don't know. But God has given us all that we need. He equips us through his word. There is nothing that God calls us to do that he won't also equip us to do through his word. It ain't about us being so smart or so wise. It's about us taking God's word in and then feeding it out. So how does the word equip us? First, the word equips us by teaching us. The word teaches us. It's how we establish the Christian faith. Now, often this comes to us through individuals, through personal testimony, but personal testimony ultimately isn't where we get the Christian faith. The Christian faith is from God's word itself. The Bible teaches us everything we need for life and godliness. But secondly, the word does this. It reproves us. Now, that's not a word that we use every day. It really just means to rebuke or correct or to, to kind of set you straight. It's kind of like someone hitting you upside the head. It can be a rebuke for false teaching or for personal faults or sins. It's the only time we see this word in the Scripture. In 2 Samuel 12, there's a very godly man, a man who knew the Lord well, a man who God's Word tells us characterizes as a man after God's own heart. If you knew this man's heart, it's like the heart of God. If you wanted to see what God's heart of love and toward people looks like, if you want to see a shepherd's heart for, for sheep, you could look at the heart of David and you would know God's heart. David is a man after God's own heart. But David was also a womanizer. And David was in a very powerful position. He was a king. And as king, he kind of had the ability to take things that he wanted. And one thing he took was another man's wife. Now, David had everything. He had a kingdom, he had a house full of wives and kids, but he went out and he stole someone else's wife. Now, it ain't easy to confront anyone, but it's really not easy to confront the king. But God told a prophet, Nathan, and he said, you go confront David, the king, and call this man to account for his sin. So David walked in and or Nathan walked in, he's no doubt nervous. I mean, it's easy to read this on the pages of Scripture. This is, this is not an easy moment for this prophet. And he walks in and he tells David a story. There is a man with, with fields full of sheep. His neighbor just had one little sheep. And this man with these fields full of sheep wanted to throw a feast. And so he stole his neighbor's sheep, his lamb, to throw a party for his friends rather than take one of his many sheep. And David stood up and he said, that man ought to die. He's a thief. And Nathan looked at David and he said, you are the man. One function of the word of God in our lives is to keep us from looking out there at all those people. 
It's to keep us from thinking about all the bad people out there. And it's God putting his finger on the pulse of our life and saying, Joshua, you are the one. You are the sinner. You stand accountable before me. You need to repent. Because our lives are, 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 we're really good at kind of looking over the fence. The, The neighbors, the culture around us. And there are certainly ways in which God's word confronts our culture. But God's word for us exists to confront us, to rebuke us, to reprove us. We fill our lives with the word because we need God's word to smack us upside the head sometime. And God said, love your neighbor as yourself, and you're just a stinking, selfish human being just like you always were. God's word confronts us and rebukes us. God's word also corrects us. And so he doesn't just say, you're wrong. He shows us, he, he corrects us. He, he leads us in the right way. It's, it's, it's not just about saying you're wrong. It's also about showing us how, how we can live Psalm 23 talks about this. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. That's that's this corrective ministry. It's God leading us toward paths of righteousness. God also uses his word and trains us in righteous living. The idea is that God takes his will and he trains us how to live it out. He shows us what his expectations are. We understand God's design. That's teaching rebuking that tells us when we mess up, correcting that brings us back to the right path, the path of righteousness, and he trains us. That's the ongoing process of walking with Christ. This word training is the same word we see in Ephesians chapter 6. When, when, when Paul's writing to fathers, Christian fathers, and he says, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word discipline is this word training. It's, it's a way of saying that discipline isn't just to correct someone, it's to train them how to live. We're like sheep, and Isaiah says, we wander and we go astray, and God's word corrects us. It, tra- it trains us. It's, it's what God uses to bring us back over and over and over again. Now look, sometimes there's this idea, and, and, and it's true, that we, we have this life-changing encounter with God, and that often happens with people, but the truth is That life-changing encounter is just this beginning. It's just the first of a series of encounters with God as God continues to train us and continues to lead us in the path of righteousness. It's not like you can eat one meal and then walk the rest of your life even if you gorge yourself on that meal. You gotta eat every day. And if you're like most people, you gotta eat multiple times every day. And and the word is is this process. God makes us wise and he grows us in the word as followers of Jesus. So then, what does this mean for us as a church? how How do we live this out as a church? This means that we believe God works through his word by the power of his spirit. Now look, planning matters. Strategy matters. Working well, reaching out matters. But the power is of God, not of us. And all we're trying to do is get the word into people's lives. There are times when God shows up and does remarkable things, but he does it by the power of his word. So we preach the word. 
We pray the word back to God. We read the word. We sing the word because we're trying to make time in the word the center of our discipleship. The word is what changes us. The word is what takes our hearts of stone and softens them by his word. As God reigns, or as Isaiah 55 puts it, snow from heaven falling on us and softening the hard soil of our hearts. So the church of all places should be people whose lives are filled with and changed by the word of God. Part of our discipleship is time in the word and then taking that time in the word and and building it out into someone else's life. We're committed to equipping one another with the word. In other words, we're not here just to eat and walk out. We're here to learn how to prepare a meal and feed someone else. Sometimes we think of church like this. We come to church, church, we got all the food in the pantry. It's my job to take that food out and feed everyone. There's some truth in that, okay? There, there, there is truth in that. That is my job. But another job that we all have is to go to our pantries and take out the ingredients of the word and feed others. It's a little bit like, like the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus does this work. He does this miracle. He feeds 5,000 people plus women and children. But who does he use to actually get that food out to the people? A bunch of disciples who have no, no clue what they're doing. <laughs> they, they don't know how to multiply loaves and fishes, but he sends them out and they take the food and they serve it to the people. So when we come for worship, we're here to worship, but we're also here to be equipped for a ministry of the word. Now, you may be like me and sometimes have no clue what you're doing, and that's okay. Because your job isn't to know. Your job is just to lead people to Jesus through the Word. Like, sometimes the only thing I know to do is just open the Bible and, like, let's just read. (laughs) Let's take God's Word and let's get it into our lives. Isaiah 55. If we do this as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower, bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Ultimately, if you fail, it doesn't matter because God's word will succeed. God promises that it will. Fourthly, our student and children's ministries are built around the Word. Now, this is important because sometimes we think, well, if we just get people to church, they'll be good. No, we got to get the Word into their lives because it's life-changing encounters with the Word of God that change our hearts. Now, look, we believe in having fun and creating an environment where that can happen, but that isn't the point. And if that becomes the point, you can do that. You you can go to Chuck E. Cheese and do that. You can go to Six Flags, Carowinds, and do that. The point is, you create welcoming environments. You create fun. You do things to break down barriers socially, relationally, so you can feed someone the word. So you can get the word into their lives. And this isn't true just for adults. It's true for kids and youth as well. The most important voice in a child's life 
is God's voice given to them through loving relationships in the local church. So we build our philosophy of ministry around the word and time in the word, and this is from the cradle to the grave. It's from beginning to end because God's word is our lifeblood and he tells us it is enough. But what's the temptation? The temptation is to take what God has said, to know what God says, to know what God has revealed, and to think, it's not enough. God hasn't spoken clearly enough. God needs me to dress this up. God, God needs us. God's, God can't. We can. Yet God says his word is sufficient. So as we close, let's take a moment and consider. Like, if, if, if we were looking at our lives, are we, you know, I don't know, Michael Phelps ready to dive into the pool? Or are we malnourished, starving Christians? Maybe the reason that we get weak or we stumble is because we don't fill our lives with what God said is, is good. We fill our lives with the word as a church and we fill our lives as Christians with the word of God. We must be people of the word because God's word is how God changes lives. So let's take a moment now and we'll respond to the word of God in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.